Thanks, Cooper. What's up, Caroline? I had a shout out. Uh, I uh, love titles. Titles are very important to me. Um, untitled is kind of like a slap in the face, although I see lots of untitled paintings from time to time. The title of my talk might be an outdated title, but I'm going to use it nonetheless. Uh, my exhortation title is IRL, as in real life. Um, We shouldn't have been friends, but we are. This admission was not in part of a longer phone conversation this summer. You stand for all the things that I'm against, Brian told me, loud and clear 3,000 miles away. We've been friends since college, and our friendship is still vital and a very important one. We talk about art, religion, politics, and the eagles of Philadelphia. This, however, was not the only phone call that caught me off guard this summer. While my almost 40-year conversation with Brian is at the heart of my talk today, I need to tell you the other story first, since it truly represents the start of summer for me. The specific date was June 11, 2020. Now, I want to pause and give a brief disclaimer. I am not using pseudonyms. Brian is not code for Jay Green. My characters are real. I'm the son of a pastor. I was the subject of many of my father's sermons, but I was never identified. My children will not suffer the same fate. I will call them out by name. Thirdly, um, the reason I want to use their names is because this is my first chapel talk in which I don't have pictures and I think real names add textures to the story the way in which I'd like to use pictures. All right, let me get back into it. Dad, um, and I'm thinking why is my son calling me 10 minutes after he left the house? It was too soon for Ian to call me since my kids never call while driving. And they certainly don't text, and neither should you. Um, I, well, Caroline's car. I interrupted him. Are you all right? How's your sister Hannah? I asked. This is not good, I thought, as I collected Caroline, my daughter, and my wife Betsy. Come with me, I said. Where are we going? What's wrong were two questions, and then a litany of others, as I managed to force out the world's words, Ian was in a car accident. It was his sister's little 2007 Mini Cooper. He was on a W road, and as we worked our way through the switchbacks, I feared what shape I would find my children in the car. It was wet. Just enough rain to bring the oils to the road surface, which makes driving dangerous. He must have slid one way and overcorrected into the wall and slid across the road into the, a ditch. Thankfully, Hannah was okay as his passenger in the sidecar that absorbed most of the force. Why wasn't it my car, Ian thought out loud. As his sister Caroline stood in tears, she hit him out of frustration. I wanted to do the same. Internally, I was mad. No, I wasn't texting, he told the police officer, who took him away from the distracting voice of his father. 
At least he's honest. He always is, and I like that about Ian. But we've been here before because my son drives too fast. I thought while I waited for JR from Broom Towing to come and take the Mini away. This was enough to send him into a mental tailspin as I flashed back to, the many, to a scene many years earlier when I stood on Interstate 95 outside of Bridgeport, Connecticut, looking over my crushed 1988 Honda Civic. Ian's plans to start his post-college life in some large city in the Northeast were changed. As many plans were changed by COVID-19. His sister Hannah was still in shock. She drove away with her mother to retrieve Kate from ballet. Seemingly, our family was in bad shape and we weren't managing quarantine very well. Two and a half months earlier, Ian was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for his last spring break as a senior at Covenant College. He was there at the beginning of March, just a week after Hannah came back to us from a trip to New York City. She was a high school delegate for the Model Unit Nations. She was in 10th grade and this trip was an honor for her. You have to go to MoMA, that's a museum of modern art, I told her, since her hotel was in Midtown Manhattan. I have to do what my chaperones say, she reminded me, and the museum is not on our list. But I'm paying for your trip. You need to see some art, I demanded. The rain helped my argument, since their walk across the Brooklyn Bridge was canceled, and they decided to wander over to the museum since it's free on Friday nights. Proudly, she sent me selfies in front of Van Gogh's The Starry Night, and she even found the Brazilian neoconcretism I was so impressed with from my earlier visit in the fall. Meanwhile, Hannah's mother created an overnight mailer filled with N95 masks. Betsy was secretly wondering, why did she send her daughter to the center of a global pandemic as it entered from Europe into New York? It also came from the West Coast through Seattle, as we know. Even though the masks arrived in time, Hannah didn't get them. According to the hotel, she didn't pick them up. Did you let her know that she had a package waiting for her? My wife asked in a, a astonishment. She's 16. Her room number is on the package. What were you thinking? Betsy said in her best Karen voice. She was mad and she demanded they return the package at their costs. Hannah got back fine. She was filled with stories of her committee work highlighted by the injustices against her arguments. She represented Bahrain, which is a sovereign state in the Persian Gulf, and she was a member of the CSW, the Commission on the Status of Women, and debated and discussed the disproportionate effects that the natural disasters have on women. One thing for sure, Hannah can monologue, and that's very true, she can. Immediately though, she exhibited signs of sickness, headaches, and a sore throat. A day later, we learned that one of her chaperones was confirmed to have type A flu. How do you know I don't have coronavirus? She feared. The constant news about the ongoing global pandemic, even in its early stages, must have worked on her psychology. How would it not? We can all empathize, right? 
Later, she told me she was scared. In her words, she felt the need to get right with God. As I often do, I did my best to absorb her anxiety, which of course must not have been good enough. As a parent, I felt exposed. I lacked the capacity to hold this together, I thought. Yep, the word exposed seems to have followed me during quarantine and beyond. In spite of me, life went on as March crashed landed into April, and perhaps more importantly, my family had plans. Now, I like plans. In my job, I make 15, 10, five, and one year plans. But then there came COVID. Now I limit my planning currently to the week ahead. It's pretty brutal, by the way. Even so, as we quarantined, my daughter Kate and her mother had a different sort of idea. They decided we needed to add to our family. Why we needed another dog when we already had the most perfect one was beyond me. For about two years, I've been giving them dad answers. No, now's not the time, or this is my favorite. We'll see. <laughs> Just think and hear your own dad's voice. Finding something to say to, would defer, uh, to defer a decision was my MO. It was my modus operandi. It was my habit. I'm good like that. I can hedge and hesitate like the best of them. We were never a dog family until we got Honey, our American Standard Poodle, a few years ago from friends who couldn't keep her anymore. This dog is so smart, and my wife worked so hard to retrain her from a 70-acre farm dog, unconstrained by fence or leash, to a suburban one with boundaries. So the day before the statewide shutdown in the spring, I drove many miles with Caroline to retrieve a dog we named Roo, as in R-O-O, as in kangaroo, named after the Winnie Pooh character. Unlike Honey's elegance, Roo is just a bulldozer. She's strong and muscular, and she has a nickname longer than her given one. Ruchard, spelled R-U-U-U-U. U-C-H-E-R-E-D. That's 11 letters. R-U-U-U-C-H-E-R-E-D is a given, name given by Kate. It's too complicated to unpack how this neologism came to be, but it's classic Kate nonetheless. Little did we know that this name she gave to an avatar from a computer game would enter into our daily family life. Kate... She's filled with imagination and expression, and above all else, an emo emotion. As an aspiring dancer, she spent the spring and summer pirouetting outside on the deck and inside the house being trained remotely through some Zoom call or YouTube video. This kind of education just looked strange, and she worked hard to keep up. Even so, her twirling is magical to me. How does she do two and a half turns? You know, it's just so delightful. One, two, and then a half. And then she critiques her own, her, her own performance. I ask, how does she do this? Because it takes me a lot of work to balance my physical and emotional life. Kate's circles seem like a perfect metaphor for my summer break. How many of us have asked, what day is it? As one day turns into the next. 
It feels like Groundhog Day, a 1993 film starred by Bill Murray and Andy McDowell, many have said. Although for me, the most common image I had in my mind was not just one, but all of Edward Hopper's paintings. His images of people alienated and alone, waiting for some form of intervention, led one critic last spring to suggest, we are all Edward Hopper paintings now. His is the art of social distancing, where his figures are lost looking for a party without invitation. You probably know Nighthawks from the Chicago Art Institute. You have three lonely figures. They sit at a downtown diner attended by a lone soda jerk. And there's many memes based on this painting. However, if I were to use uh, images in this talk, I would show you his painting, Cape Cod Morning, 1950. In that painting, there's a lone female figure. And she's standing, and she looks eagerly out of a bay window into the marches that marshes that reach the sea. She looks eastward, and the woman is bathed in warm light, like many of you sitting out there now. And while a very cool violet shadow frames of the house frames her. So what you're looking at is this picture. It's brilliant yellow, and it's a warm yellow. And it's framed by this gorgeous blue violet around it as a cast shadow on the white clapboard house. It, the frame locks her into space. And of course, we have no clue what's beyond the right side of the picture plane, the place of her gaze. And we're left with a bit of anxiety as we gaze at the pensive figure frozen in time. Having seen many of Hopper's works, I'm caught wondering, if I really care for his people, do I really care for the lonely and the brokenhearted? Do I look at the overlooked? This might be another way I feel exposed. Do I have enough empathy for the other, especially when my work and my relationships are sometimes filled out through a screen? Embodiment shouldn't work like this, but it does now. And I'm sure we all wonder what the long-term cost of doing life through the screen, or even the short-term cost. With access to constant information in my pocket, I get hopeful when it vibrates with a text message. Who is it, I wonder? What do they want? I think this in my head while my body moves involuntarily. It oscillates. It's a form of a conditioned response. My muscle memory is to reach into my pocket even when the phone isn't there. Let's face it, I'm no different than you with my consumption. I unwittingly get absorbed. However, I know, and you know, it has a price. And be, but before you utter the phrase, okay, boomer, as my children sometimes do, hear me out. In his 2017 book, The Hacking of the American Mind, Robert M. Lutzig shares a statistic that, quote, there is a 40% loss of empathy in college students as a result of possessing a smartphone. He's quoting Sherry Turkle there. What does that mean, I wonder? And is 60% enough of a reserve? Lutzig argues that we need to reclaim our contentment through solitude, which is his mind is different from being alone. I'm quoting him here. If we don't teach our children how to be alone, 
then we doom them to always be lonely. Sure, our phones allow for greater access to information and potential connectivity, but Lutzig suggests our phones are taking away social interaction and subsequent social empathy, both of which require active social participation. Look, I know this rant is getting old. You hear it all the time. But as I understand it, you all wanted to be here on this campus this year. You wanted to smell the fall air. You wanted to walk through the clouds that descend on top of the mountain, I think. And you all wanted sunshine. You wanted to be here IRL, in real life. Again, that phrase, that acronym is a little outdated. I understand it. But I want to bring it back. What does it mean, IRL? You wanted to be together. And to be honest, so did I. Embodied education means absorbing body language and facial expression, even masked expressions. Our opportunity to love God and love our neighbor, the other, to do that well is to participate in life, especially within the constraints of COVID. Not after COVID, but even now. We are told to social distance and wear our masks, right? Ask Dean Voiles, it has an effect. If we ever return to normal, whatever that's supposed to mean, or return to the status quo, can we reimagine human connection in ways that we'll pay attention to the other and make friends with the overlooked, like the Hopper paintings, our neighbor, or someone who is not like us? Lutzig is a professor of pediatrics at the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. When my wife gave me this book to read, I thought she wanted me to change my diet. But she actually wanted me to see something more. Lutzig is the guy who writes about politics and food. And in this book, he writes about the science of addictions. Sugar apparently is neither happiness nor contentment. Sugar, like the cell phone, is pleasure. It's dopamine, the reward trans neurotransmitter that tells our brain, I want more. Too much dopamine leads to addiction in susceptible individuals. Serotonin, however, is the neurotransmitter that tells our brain, I've had enough. It's the message that says, I don't need that extra slice of pizza. I'm good. Lutzig says too, that too many of our simple pleasures outweigh our supply of serotonin. And too little serotonin leads to depression. The hacking, according to Lussig, is that corporate America tells us that food, objects, and experiences will bring us happiness. It's just a clever marketing scheme to make us consume more and more. They focus on things that trigger dopamine and convince you these things will make you happy, but that is actually serotonin's job. Dark chocolate, as much as we like it, or I like it, doesn't make you happy, it gives you pleasure. Look. I'm out of my league when it comes to discussing science and marketing, but I'm intrigued with his thoughts about reclaiming happiness and his solutions for most of us are not that far out of reach. Connect, contribute, cope, cook are his four C's of commitment. They're not passive, and according to Lutzig, you have to perform them for any to work. The pursuit of happiness is active, he, he says, and in some cases, he says, pursuit means actively doing nothing. 
earlier, I explored a little bit what it means to connect with and without our phones. And I think the sea of contribute is pretty easy since the focus is outward, what we might call loving our neighbor. Exercise, sleep, mindfulness, or he calls that spirituality, are, help us cope. While I'd like to examine whether or not I'm coping well amidst the pandemic, we'll skip over that one and look at the final C of commitment, to cook. In his next to last chapter in his book, he takes down his enemy sugar one more time. Sugar is in everything we eat, and especially in high processed foods that can make you extremely unhappy. His anecdote for sugar, and here Lutzik uses all caps, get ready, cook real food for yourself, for your friends, and for your family, exclamation point. Cook, right? Now I know very few of you have access to a kitchen, and very few of you even know how to cook, but maybe you need to learn a few things about food. Why else do we have the classic book, The Joy of Cooking? Because in cooking, there's happiness. Happiness, for me, is coffee, because coffee time is my serotonin. It is connection time and self time. It is contentment. My daughter Caroline learned at an early age what it was meant by coffee time, and our dogs have learned it too. Her dad would not be interrupted by anything, and that's true. Now, she, Caroline, embraces her own form of coffee time. She shares my fascination with coffee as a full sensory palate, from the touch of the bean in the palm of my hand, to the sound of the coffee grinder, to the aroma of the fresh ground, to the color of the black and tan froth on the surface, and finally to the bitter, unsweetened taste. It's actually this foam structure that Carolina and I are most after. If you were to look at the images we send to each other each day on our cell phones, no less, there are close-up pictures of bubbles and velvety foam covering the surface of the black liquid below. These circular images have titles such as sunspots, coffee haze, and my favorite, celestial bodies. They're just a few of these that make me smile. Making foam takes practice, I tell her, after you steep the coffee in the French press for four minutes, and with a nimble touch, you pour the coffee while releasing the plunger of the pressed ground to create the perfect flow into the cup. That, that's what creates the foam. The first sip is the best, my wife says, and we would all agree. I like the French press because the oil is released from the bean. Other methods reduce the slippery taste that's so important to me. Someday, Caroline and I will make a book filled with pictures from our coffee pours. I think we'll title it Sunshine, because sunshine is Caroline's personality. She glows just like that radiant orb in the sky. The problem is, Americans don't know how to cook suggest Lutzig, and I think we can do better, you can do better. The thing about the meal is not just eating the food, but the performance of it. This is how I first got to know Brian. We were in art school, and his former girlfriend thought that he and I should be friends. She was right. He had spent a year abroad studying art in Italy, and his second education must have been cooking. I suppose everyone learns to cook while living there. So my job was to watch while he prepared food and fuel the conversation. The knife, in the, chef's, the knife is the chef's most important tool and it must be sharp. His kitchen was different from my mother's. His knives were sharp. Of course, Brian and I ate pasta and we shared vino, but we shared more. 
We were different. He's Jewish and he has taken his hits throughout his life. The Northeast Catholic boys would beat him up after school because, well, you know why. He was different. He wasn't like them, right? He was an outsider. And believe it or not, in the context of art school, so was I. Many times I felt alone and I was out of place. What was I doing here, I thought. Even so, Brian and a few others thought my conversation did matter if they didn't understand me or what I was doing in such a secular culture. A Christian boy, suspicious of one who they saw as a social conservative or religious fanatic. Or at least that's how I think about it now. Art school put front and difference front and center. The art, the people, and the ideas just stretched me. You could say I felt exposed then too. I lacked the world knowledge that they had. My friend Kelly tells me without that history, I just wouldn't be me. By God's grace, I navigated my BFA and my master's degree a few years later. Brian visited me when I was in Japan. I had lived there for two years in my mid-twenties. His visit was less than a year after his girlfriend, Marcia, died of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Vividly, I recall as if it were yesterday, the black and white photograph that slowly fell from my envelope to the floor in slow motion. Gone forever, but not forgotten, was written in Brian's hand on the back of the picture with Marcia's smile front and center. Within the next year, we would learn of a friend who had AIDS. This was the death sentence in the mid to late 80s. He was Brian's roommate when I first met both of them. And of course, a few years later, my, our friend died. This time, I received an email. Brian took his ashes and threw them in the Grand Canyon. Ida, Brian's mother, had told me that Brian has endured impossible amount of grief and loss throughout his life. As an act of mourning, Brian made drawings from the medication bottles that an AIDS patient left behind. They were simply beautiful. What I most admire about Brian is his interest in everything, particularly his interest in current events that make their way into his art. Brian is an empathetic artist and photographer. I recall an exhibit once where he gave cameras to cancer patients so they could document their pain. Presently, he's working on a project that looks at how religion, specifically Judaism, Christianity, and Muslim, and their fundamentalisms are portrayed in print. His artistic discipline is to comb the news cultivated from online sources and historical media outlets. So when he told me over the phone, it's not the media's fault, the blame is ours, I couldn't agree more. Of course, we're talking about the racial, political, and social tensions in the middle of a pandemic that has paralyzed us all. I live in the American South, I reminded him, as I talked about masks at church and the themes of social justice and Black Lives Matter. It's complicated for Brian. Even now, he teaches at a Catholic school, and he continues his role as an outsider, as he has his own history of prejudicial harassment and microaggressions that have occurred over time. On May 31st, 2020, a quarter of a mile block away from his home in Santa Monica, California, and in the name of racial justice, fires and looting ensued. No political protesters, just a curfew began at 4 p.m. Looting is selfish, he wrote on June 1, the day he shot Daybreak, a picture selected for Artillery Magazine. In that picture, you have a cool blue-gray image. There's a sense of calm. But in contrast to that peaceful morning, there's a burnt out car with graffiti 
sprayed across the passenger side doors. It thrust from the lower part of the picture, directing our eye to the upper right of the composition. Once the aftermath of the night before is surveyed, the viewer finds two palm trees turning away from the street, reaching hopefully to the sky. And on that day, Brian found rubber bullet casings on the sidewalk. In 2020, our frustrations has reached its tipping point. George Floyd's hi death highlights the voice of the oppressed, and frankly, we need to listen. Systemic racism is being looked at in ways not done before in this country. This has led some cities to declare racism as a public health crisis. But who is to blame? Brian and I asked each other. It depends on what you think about people, I wondered out loud. The blame is ours, he said, and he's right because by nature we're broken, sinful people. Rather than justice of the social kind, we should talk about biblical justice, I told him. You know, the principle of the gleaners, the year of Jubilee, I said. Thinking about that conversation now, I should have followed up with a different question. Who's going to save us from this mess? This last question makes me think of the fourth and final image, and it's always with me. Caravaggio's Doubting Thomas, painting officially known as the incredulity of St. Thomas, is a compelling piece of Baroque art. Graphic darks and light and dramatic foreshortening point to the figure of Christ, who grasps the hand of Thomas, directing it to the wound under Christ's right breast. A closer inspection reveals that it's not just Thomas's brow, but also of the two other disciples in the com composition. And if we're honest with ourselves, our brow is furled too. The figures in the painting create a mirroring effect where one person unconsciously Im imitates the gesture or speech pattern of the other. All three figures, or should I say four, since we're now included in the composition, circle around Christ and wonder what Thomas so boldly stated. Unless I see it, the wounds in the hands of the risen Jesus, I won't believe it. Brian once said something similar to me as he looked at my worn out Bible. Unless you can prove to me rationally that God exists, I can't believe it. Today he's less interested in that tension between faith and reason, but rather he's curious about what faith in God means and how it acts, or at least that's how I think about it today. For my money, Caravaggio is Western arts history's best painter. He's not my favorite, but he's the best. Rather than Hopper's solitary figures, Nigerian-American Tasia Cole gives me an argument why Caravaggio might be a better place for my reflections during this troubling season of life. Cole's September 23, 2020 piece for the New York Times Magazine is his personal reflection during dark times. And he explains how Caravaggio helps him understand beauty and suffering. The writing is so beautiful that will make you weep. No wonder he's a writing professor at Harvard. Cole says this about the 17th century Thomas work. He says, the themes in Caravaggio's painting might derive from the Bible or from myth, but it's impossible to forget, even for a moment, that this painting made by a particular person, a person with a specific set of emotions and sympathies. The maker in there is Caravaggio. We sense him calling out to us. His contemporaries may have been interested in the biblical lesson of doubting Thomas, but we are attracted to Thomas's uncertainty, which we read in some way as the painter's own. Caravaggio's questions are mine too. Here again, I'm exposed by my own doubt, 
My brow is furrowed. A few years ago, I told Brian that the resurrection of Jesus is central to my life. This is the core of the Christian faith, I said. I don't believe, if I don't believe it, I said, my life has been a waste of time. Belief is one thing, I'm sure. What would it look like to live it, I wonder? For theologian N.T. Wright, he suggests planting a tree. However, for me to live it, and I would exhort for you to live it, is to find a friend different than you, one who sharpens who you are and what you believe. Be generous to that gift because friendship is a profound blessing and love her or him for who they are. Be quiet and listen, even if you are divided in your differences. When I see Brian, I see most of all a compassionate and passionate person who is an image bearer of our creator. He is my friend and I've learned much from him. Finally, to act like the resurrection matters is to remember. Remember that Jesus responded to Thomas's unbelief and he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Those words 2,000 years ago are for us today. The blessing is so encouraging and life-changing, especially how we interact with others. It's such an encouragement and it is filled with joy. And if you're still wondering what I learned over my summer break, I learned to live in real life. Thank you. <laughs>